Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. Thanks for gathering here this morning. Thank you for bringing the church uh, into this sanctuary, into the, this space. For those of you that are gathered for Crosspoint at home, thanks for bringing the church into uh, your home, your living room, your dining room, wherever you happen to be uh, tuning in from. My name is Jamie. If we've never met, uh, it's my joy, my privilege to be one of the pastors here at Crosspoint. Uh, and excited to dive into it. It's week three of this series uh, that we're going to be in over the, the course of most of the spring um, called Abraham, A Field Guide to Loving God And what we've been looking at to kind of catch you up to speed or maybe as just a, a bit of a reminder if you've been here the last couple of weeks is the thing for us we've been created for is to, to love and to worship God, all right? Like that's the, the great commandment, to love God. And then Jesus says secondarily to, to love others as we, as we love ourselves. And sometimes it can be easier to know practically like how do I love my neighbor? And there might be ways and things that come to mind more readily. But when we think about loving God, we're like well, what does that actually look like, what does that entail, um, and how should I go about that if that's the big thing? And so we're looking at the life of Abraham to help guide us, this sort of like this, this field guide, all right? It's not exact description of what to, to do, all right? But it is a, it helps orient us to here's what it looks like to faithfully follow God. And yet what I said over the last couple of weeks, all right, kind of knowing that what the text we're gonna be in here in just a moment was coming is there are aspects of Abraham's life where absolutely you can look at it and be like, hey, there's, some, there's a call to emulate, to imitate, like he's getting it right here. He's not perfect, but, but man, he's doing some really good things. It's why he's regarded as the father of the faith. And there are things that we will look at that are good examples, certainly. And yet in this, there's also things that we are not to follow Abram in. All right, this man that's Abram becomes Abraham, all right? We are going to look at a text this morning that should be abundantly clear as I read it here in a moment that it's like, oh, he is not getting it right at this point. Uh, he is not only that, it's not just like a, oh, well, he didn't quite get it right here. No, no, no. He messes up like big time, all right? And so if you're here this morning and you're like, is there grace for me? I've messed up in big ways. You're going to see. I hope you're encouraged in this, all right? There's one hero in this world. There's one hero in the Bible. It is not you, it's not me, it's not Abraham, it is Jesus. And this text, even in all the ways that Abraham fails, is gonna point us to that reality. And so there's hope for broken sinners like you and me. And so if that's you, and you're like, yeah, I'm broken, like, welcome. Church is made up of a group of people that are broken but are being redeemed by Jesus, all right? And so we're gonna look at this this morning Less about the example that Abraham gives and more of like, oh, like, what is this teaching us? Like, what should we avoid? How can this be used, though, in an instructional sense as well, but ultimately to show us the grace of God? And so I want to invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 12. If you brought a Bible, please turn there. Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 10. There are uh, some paperback Bibles in the pew backs. You can turn there. You can also go to cplife.church on your phone. And you'll see something there that says sermon notes, and you can click that. The text will be there, as well as any of the things I put up on the screen. There's some space to take notes there as well. So Genesis chapter 12, we'll pick it up in verse 10 through chapter 13, verse 2. So let me go ahead and read this. We have God's account of this, the life of Abraham, very early in the story. And if you missed the last couple of weeks, I will work to, to catch you up to speed here. But beginning in verse 10, it says this. There was a famine in the land, and so Abram went down to Egypt to stay there for a while because the famine in the land was severe. And when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, 
look, I know what a beautiful woman you are. Now, if it just ended there, it's like, way to go, Abram, right? Like, you're getting this right. You're on this long journey, all right? Things are rough. There's a famine. But, but my girl, I just want you to know you're beautiful, right? Like, that would be great. But the story, unfortunately, continues, all right? And so here's what it says, all right? He's like, I know you're a beautiful woman. Verse 12, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, ah, this is his wife, and they will kill me but let you live. So please say that you are my sister, so it will go well for me because of you, and my life will be spared on your account. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful, and Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, so the woman was taken to Pharaoh's household. Household, you can also translate as harem. That's practically what's going on here. He treated Abram well because of her, and Abram acquired flocks and herds, male and female donkeys, male and female slaves, and camels. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his household with severe plagues because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh sent to Abram and said, what have you done to me? Why didn't you tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her as my wife? Now, here's your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave his men orders about him, and they sent him away with his wife and all he had. Chapter 13 begins this way. Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev. He, his wife, all he had, and Lot with him. Abram was very rich in livestock, silver, and gold. This is God's word for us this morning. My guess is you're like, oh, I see what he means where maybe this is not a good example, all right? And if you're like, I'm still confused on that, hopefully it'll be crystal clear here in a moment, all right? But what I want to make sure we're understanding, all right, is just as a bit of a recap, where were we the last time, like, we were interacting with this man, Abram, that would be renamed Abraham? Well, what we learned in chapter 12, the first nine verses, was that Abram was this man, very much like the rest of the culture, worshiping the pagan gods, in particular, the moon god. And if you're like, you sure about that? Go listen to the message from last week that's online. There's all kinds of clues in the text that that's what his whole family is engaged in. And yet, God, not because Abram's awesome, not because he has spiritually attained some status, but because God in his grace would come down, would condescend to Abram and say, I'm picking you and I'm going to make you into a great nation. I know your wife is barren. I know you're advanced in years. You don't have any children yet, but you just wait. Will you trust me? I will not only give you a child, I'm gonna make you into a whole nation. And beyond that, this nation will be a blessing. Like, I'm creating a people that will be a blessing for all the peoples of the earth. Every background, nationality, ethnicity, every location, every tribe, tongue. Like, that's, that's what I'm after, God is telling him. And I'm going to give you this land as well. And there's an invitation. Will you follow me? And so the last we heard from this man named Abram were these words. It says this, he built an altar to the Lord there. So as he goes into this land that's been promised, this land of Canaan, where there's all sorts of worship of Baal and all these other false gods, right? Abraham's just on like this worship tour. And it says he built an altar to the Lord there and he called on the name of the Lord. This was risky behavior, but he doesn't care He's like, God has called me. The one true God came and spoke to me, made these promises to me. Like, I'm all in. And so he gathers up his family. He gathers all that he has. He leaves behind his entire life that he's known. And he sets out. And guess what? He doesn't have all the details, but he trusts God. 
He trusts God enough to say, okay, God's called me. He's going to equip me along the way. He's going to give me what I need along the way, even though I'm sure he had tons of questions like we would have. And he sets up an altar, and he's calling on the name of the Lord. He's, it's basically like this posture of like, for anybody that will listen, I want you to know, like, there's one true God. He has called me. My family's all in. That's the last we heard in verse 9 of chapter 12. And now we find that there's this famine that's take place, take, taking place. And you have to wonder for Abram if he's, I think, understandably, maybe he's like, God, you brought me, you did this, we're good, kind of spiritual high, mountaintop experience, and then you brought me to this land only for everything to completely dry up, and there's no means of sustenance. Like, what am I going to do? Have you brought me here to kill me? And I think what we have to see in these, this opening verse, in verse 10 of chapter 12, is I think it's fair to say Abram's dealing with some frustration about the pain of life, and he's also being forgetful. And so frustrated on the one hand, right? Because, yeah, there was a famine in the land. I think it would be fair. I think I'd be frustrated. Like, wait, what is going on? And so I think he's in that spot. And I think there's an invitation. I want you to hear this. If there's stuff in your life, maybe this past week, that's just reminded you again and again, like, man, things are broken. Things are not as they should be, let alone what you want them to be. Like, they're not even how God wants them to be, right? Like, there's things that are just not right yet. There's space, absolutely, to be frustrated. Read the Psalms. You'll see time and time again, there's more Psalms of lament, like this crying out, God, where are you? What's happening? And yet what you see in the Psalms of lament so often, too, is a turning point where after crying out, which sometimes just even sounds like complaining, and God's big enough to handle that, right? So we can call out, and we can cry out, and we can be frustrated and hurt and dealing with that. There is this moment, typically, where the psalmist begins to call to mind, though, like, okay, here's who God is, and here's who I am in light of this, this story, and things begin to be reoriented. But it doesn't seem like that's happening here for Abram, because it tells us, all right, so he went down to Egypt. So he makes these plans. He's like, okay, this is what we're going to do, all right? And I think there's at one level, or at a couple levels, there's this forgetfulness then plays out in that he's, for one, maybe forgetting that there is just a broken world that we live in. Right? I think we all experience that where maybe something's gone well and we kind of hope that that will continue, but we need to heed the words like the Apostle Peter would write in 1 Peter 4. Dear friends, like listen to that line. Like he's just inviting him. He's like, very pastoral, my friends. He's not rebuking them. He's not trying to hit them over the head with this. But he's like, hey, we just, can we remember this? Don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening to you. Instead, Let's rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ so that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. And so we need to not forget that God is at work in the famine, in the drought, in the valley, in those places of hurt and pain and brokenness. And I think Abram's forgetting some of that. And I don't say that in an accusatory way. Like, I forget those things all the time. But I also think he's forgetting this call that's been put on his life. He's forgotten very, very quickly who God is. And maybe, to think about it this way, my guess is he still knows that God is sovereign and powerful and in control. And yet I wonder if he's lost sight, though, that God is good. God is not just out there. But God is close. God cares. God is compassionate. That God is going to see him through this. 
And there's nothing wrong inherently with him devising a plan. I mean, like, if you stay in a land where there's famine, like, okay, you're going to run out of food. Like, what do we do? The problem here, and his forgetfulness shows up, because there's no mention in the text that God, that, I'm sorry, that Abram sought God, that he asked God, that he prayed to God. They said, God, is this what you would have for me? Kent Hughes in his commentary on Genesis says it this way, Abram did the natural thing, and herein the problem lies. There's no mention that he sought God's will in the matter. Abram's going to Egypt was not so much an intentional sin as it was a reflexive turn to his own devices. He did not deny God. He simply forgot him. He forgot how great God is. I think we have to honestly ask ourselves in this very bizarre account in the life of Abram, are you and I forgetting how great God is? Are we allowing circumstances and difficulty to shape our view of who God is? And part of why we gather on Sunday and part of the reason we scatter throughout the week to be in studies and community groups and all of that is not to fill your schedule, but because we all need to be reminded how great God is because I will forget. Like, I'll preach this message and I will drive home and it will be a battle on the drive home, not just because I'm dealing with 436 traffic, all right? But it will be a battle to even believe. Like, God, are you doing something here? I'll tell you what, like, there's never more doubts in my mind or feelings of insecurity and vulnerability than sort of like the, the sermon, the post-sermon like hangover on the drive home, right? And I don't know what it is for you, but we all have these doubts and insecurities. Do we believe that God is good? And Abram, he doesn't consult God. In this language, I think going down to Egypt, yes, that's true geographically, but there's also this sort of downward spiral that's taking place. And if you know this, right, as we've looked at these opening, the opening account, the promises that God made were around two big things. I'm going to give you this land, and then there's this offspring. There's the people. Because God has promised all the way back in Genesis 3, when the fall took place, that from the seed of the woman, there would one day come someone who would crush the head of the serpent, deal with Satan's sin and death. And each generation is like, oh, is this the promised one? Is this the promised one? And so there's this continuation, this redemptive story, land and offspring, land and offspring. And yet, within a matter of a paragraph, think about this. The land that was promised, he has now left. And as we read a moment ago, and we'll look at here more closely in just a moment, so he's left the land and he's given away his wife. That's rather problematic if the two promises are, you're going to have this land. He's like, yeah, I'm going to leave the land, and you're going to have offspring. And he's like, I'm going to give away my wife to another man. No husband of the year awards here for Abram, right? Like, what is going on? And so I want us to dive in to these next few verses in this very bizarre account And the temptation, I think, is going to be to read the particulars of this and actually maybe get a little puffed up and think, okay, I might have had a bad week. Maybe even husbands here, you're like, you know what, I was unkind to my wife, but I didn't do that, right? Uh, And maybe like feel good about ourselves. But I think if we peel back the layers a bit, we'll begin to see there is something at a root heart issue that Abram's dealing with that we all deal with whether single, married, young, old, everywhere in between. And the issue that we're going to see here is how much of who he is and his behavior and actions are being dictated by fear. And so let me read again 11 to 16 
So it says they go down to Egypt, right? When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai. Now, think about this. They're getting ready to enter the land. They've journeyed hundreds of miles. Just imagine for a moment this conversation that seemingly starts out, well, hey, Sarai, you're beautiful, right? Um, and it tells us that at this point, too, um, Abram's 75, she's 65, all right? Like, Sarah apparently has it going on, right? Um, and he's like, hey, like, the Egyptians, they're going to see you. Pharaoh's going to want to take you. Like, he knows she must be strikingly beautiful. And so they're having this conversation, but it very quickly becomes evident that Abram is not concerned about Sarai. He's not concerned about her well-being. He is consumed with self and will do anything to protect himself. And just think about this conversation. I mean, as we read this, try and put yourself in that situation. Imagine that they're traveling, all right? Imagine that you're Sarai here, and she hears her husband saying, yeah, I know you're a beautiful woman, but when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, they'll kill me. So please say you are my sister, so it will go well for me. Look, I know you're beautiful, but they're gonna kill me. And so he concocts this plan. He's conniving. He's scheming. He has not consulted God with leaving the land. And now when he gets there, there's this fear that's welling up. And we'll see that it wasn't unfounded. Sarai is beautiful. And Pharaoh literally can take anybody at any time for his household, right? Like that actually does play out. So it's not that Abram is just crazy and Sarai has to be like, you're overreacting. That's not going to happen. No, it actually does happen, Right? And as we learn from their genealogy at the end of Genesis uh, chapter 11, all right, in that time, the, you know, time and place and the world and all of that, um, there's a partial truth here. Sarai is his half-sister. If you're like, well, that's weird. It is, but just go with it for now, right? Um, so on the one hand, maybe he's trying to justify, like, oh, well, you know, I can say this, or you can say you're, you know, my, you know, my sister. And Okay, yeah, there's some truth in that, but again, his heart is bent on protecting himself through his own devices, the man who was on this worship tour just going and proclaiming and building altars is now scheming in his own strength. And again, so it will go well for me. That's the focus. And so rather than being devoted to God and following God and his will, Abram is now pursuing self. And when we pursue self, the implications, the repercussions, the ripple effect, it never just affects you and me. That's the lie the enemy uses. Hey, you do you. You pursue what you want to do. And at the end of the day, it's not going to affect anybody. Lies. Like lies, lies, lies upon lies. Because Abram in this moment, his like what he does has massive implications. This stayed with them forever. It doesn't mean there's no grace or forgiveness and all of that, but you have to know this affected their relationship, right? The text doesn't tell us explicitly, all right? Was there sexual abuse that happened? Likely, quite possible, even if not, just the emotional abuse, the trauma for her to be disregarded that much by Abram, this father of the faith, Right? Abram is operating according to a mindset that Bruce Waltke in his commentary, this theologian on the book of Genesis, said he's choosing defilement over death. He's willing for his wife to be defiled by this Egyptian ruler. So what's at the heart of that? And if we look at that, like, okay, how does this have anything to do with your life and my life? Well, there's a, 
idea here where we've got to press into. And it's not just a generic fear. It's in particular, it's a, it's a fear of man, a fear of other people. Uh, this sort of looking to other people or our circumstances and losing sight of who God is. Ed Welch, a number of years ago, wrote a book called When People Are Big and God is Small. And it gets at some of these, these ideas. And in it, he says this. And I think this is where the particulars maybe can fade to the background and what can come to the kind of the surface of it, come into the focus here for all of us. It's like, oh, I have fear of man issues. I have codependency issues. There are things that drive me that's not a healthy fear of God, but a fear of other people. So Ed Welch says this in his book. He said, we should be afraid, he's saying, when physically threatened. Like, that's not a bad thing, right? It is certainly not sinful for the adrenaline to be flowing when you're being fired upon. But fear of man is fear run amok. It might start with the very natural fear associated with being vulnerable and threatened. At times, however, this alarm is not regulated by faith. It becomes fear that is consumed with itself, and for a time, it forgets God. It becomes a fear that, when activated, he says, rules your life. And in such a state, we trust for salvation in others. This is what's going on, I think, with Abram in this moment. It's not a healthy fear and worship of God. It's a fear of circumstances. It's a fear of what Pharaoh might do. It's a fear of a famine. So, I mean, do you see this? It's like one deci- bad decision after another. And then it tells us the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful, so the woman was taken to Pharaoh's household. And so this does play out. Abram is right. His wife is really beautiful, and Pharaoh is going to want her. But do you notice the language as well? Up to this point, she is Sarai. She is Abram's wife. She has a name. But at this point, the Egyptians saw that the woman It's like the author signifying to us, now she's just an object. Now she's something to be used, to be sinned against, to be defiled for Abram ultimately to save his own skin. And so they saw the woman. So the woman was taken to Pharaoh's household. She's objectified in this moment. This is what fear, this unhealthy fear leads to. And again, we can look at that and be like, well, that happened a long time ago, and Abram's lost his mind, and thank God I'm not Abram. But can I put before you, I think, something that we have to embrace, that we have to see in this text. As we look at this and we ask, God, where are we in this? Like, what do you have for us? How should we be viewing ourselves? I think we have to see that we are Abram. That the same fears that drove him to make these horrific decisions are at play in your life and in my life. They're in my heart. They exist here. And unless we see this, I don't think we will actually learn the lessons that we're called to learn from this text so that we might actually love God. We actually have to see that we are Abram so that we might actually even experience and have a a growing awareness of the love that God has for us and what it would cost us, cost him to rescue us. And so in that same book, When People Are Big and God is Small, Ed Welch, at the end of the opening chapter, begins to just lay out some diagnostic questions, begins to just ask us to consider, all right, What's going on? Do you have a fear of other people, a fear of man? And maybe some of you are like, oh, yeah, I know, I definitely do. And some of you are like, I, I don't know. Maybe you feel pretty good in that regard. Let me work through a few of these questions. I'll read through them, 
Again, cplife.church, they're all listed there. You can go and revisit them later on, all right? But let me just read a few of these things and ask yourself, oh, ask the Holy Spirit, more importantly, to show for you, oh, that is me, or I do that. First question, do you ever struggle with peer pressure? Do you feel that pressure? What about this? Are you overcommitted? Do you have trouble saying no to things? Might be a fear of people. You don't want to disappoint somebody. You speak to these issues. Do you, quote, need something from your spouse or your friend? Now, there's a good kind of need, but there's also this, no, I, like, I, I need you to like, completely fulfill everything. Like You have to be there for me at every level. You cannot disappoint me or let me down. Is self-esteem critical for you? We're not after having low self-esteem, but is it like so important that you always just feel puffed up? Do you ever feel like you might be exposed as an imposter? People really knew me. They really knew my story. They really knew my background. Do you worry that you'd be exposed as an imposter? Are you always second-guessing decisions? These might, again, just be clues, little indicators on the dashboard. Oh, yeah, maybe I am driven more by other people's thoughts, opinions, expectations of me. Does life sometimes feel empty or meaningless? Do you get easily embarrassed? Those, again, indicators, oh, I've got this, perhaps this fear of people. Do you ever lie, especially, quote, little white lies? I feel like I never do that. Liar, right? Like, that's the real, like, we do, but the question, like, why do we do that? Why do we, why can we not be known? What are we trying to, like, how are we trying to save face? Like, what, pay attention to the type of lies that you tend to tell. We all tell lies, but we tell different types of lies because there's something we hold sacred that we don't want to be looked at as incompetent or irresponsible or, or whatever, Right? Hey, did you get my email? And so, you know, it's kind of like, well, oh yeah, I get it, but I, you know, I, I need, I haven't responded yet. Oh yeah, we all do those things. I do those things all the time. I realize, oh, like instead of just owning something in the moment, I don't want to look like, um, like I've let somebody down, right? So there's all these ways it manifests itself. What about this? Are you jealous of other people? Somebody that has a healthy fear of God and not a fear of man, fear of other people, can, can actually celebrate the good things that happen to somebody else. But do you feel jealous of other people? Do other people often make you angry or depressed? I'm not saying people don't do things that would make you angry or make you sad, right? But like, man, is, it, is, is your whole disposition so greatly affected by other people? What about this? Like, do you avoid certain people? I don't want to, oh gosh, you see that person there? Nope, I'm taking, I'm going to go down this aisle at Publix, right? Um, whatever that might look like. It's one thing to want to be in good shape, but if you ever asked yourself, like, why, why do you diet? Or why do you exercise, right? Like, how many of those things, perhaps, that are good things, can be driven by expectations or what other people think of you? And then if you heard that whole list, you're like, no, I'm a, I'm a complete success. None of those things affect me. You are still living according to other people and not defining your life by who God says you are, but in comparison to how well you do in this list. So at the end of the day, like we all have this fear of other people, this fear of man. 
And so what we need to do in this, and here's what I think is so key, and what I think Abram misses in this, and what I miss all the time. Again, the particulars may not look the same, right? Like, I hope you, if you're married, I hope you didn't do this to your spouse this past week, right? But here's the call. We are called to fight fear with fear. It's going to be very natural. There's going to be times that we are fearful of situations and things, and it's not to ignore those things and bury your head in the sand and be like, no, 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 everything's great, right? Like, but the call is to fight fear with fear. We need a healthy fear of the Lord, a right worship of the Lord, a right understanding of who he is and who we are by his grace so that that would sort of swallow up these lesser fears. So maybe a way to think about it is this. Um, I have a bit of a fear of needles and having blood drawn, all right? Used to be okay with it, um, and then something switched, um, and now it's like they go in, I'm like, you're not gonna have me lay down because I'm gonna pass out. You're gonna want me to lay down, right? Um, And so that's how it goes now in the doctor's office. I have a fear of it. I dread it. I put it off. They're like, you were supposed to come in for your labs six months ago. And I'm like, oh yeah, I never got around to it. Like really, I'm just like, I'm a big scaredy cat, right? Like that's, that's, that's where things are. However, if somebody came running in right now and said, one of your daughters needs blood, all right, um, and they need it from you, there would be no part of me that would say, you know what, I, I don't want them to die, I'm fearful of them dying, but I'm really fearful of, of needles, so I'm not sure what to do in this moment, right? The fear of losing them would completely swallow up and envelop any fear of needles. I mean, to the point, it'd be like, I don't know, just cut my arm off and let it bleed out into a cup, right? Like, I don't care. Like, get what you need in this, this moment, And that's what we mean by fight fear with fear. We have to fear God. We have to understand, not in a cowering, like, oh, God, I'm so scared of you, but rather we are in awe of who he is, his love that he has for us, his pursuit of us. We're resting in who he is, his character, his nature, and then subsequently who we are, who he's made us to be. This is why David writes in Psalm 56, he says this, he's under threat. People are after him, all of this. He says, when I am afraid, I will trust in you, in God whose word I praise. This is fear of God language here. In God I trust, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? I mean, there's like this holy swagger that he has in this moment. Not because his confidence is in him, but he's got this fear of God. He's just like, hey, People might come after me, people might kill me, but at the end of the day, like, I'm untouchable because I'm with God. Like, he has rescued me, he's called me his son. Do we have that kind of confidence? Now, Abram, I think, has lost sight of this. And so, famine occurs, I gotta run, I gotta devise a plan, right? Now it's like, oh, shoot, this is gonna happen now when we show up in Egypt, and so he concocts this whole thing, and it just leads to more and more sin, It's gonna affect his relationship with his wife. All of this. We have to remember who we are and who God has made us to be. For Christmas uh, this year, uh, my wife and daughters, uh, they gave me this box set of this series of books called The Wingfeather Saga. Some of you perhaps have have read this by the author and he's also a singer-songwriter, Andrew Peterson. Um, And so they were like, hey, you only reference Lord of the Rings. You should read something else, right? And so, um, so sat down to read, you know, I was gonna read this. I was like, ah, you know, well, maybe Harry Potter, but apparently that's overrated. And um, just kidding, all right, don't send the email. People were, like, people were like, I knew I didn't like this church. Anyway, um, so, uh, but I, I got this series of books. I've been wanting to read this, uh, read this for a while. Um, and I don't think this is a 
big spoiler alert, but I mean, I guess you can cover your ears if, if you want. But I was recently got a chance to finally work through the first book. And in this, this wonderful story that's being told, it's fair to say there's lots of danger around every corner. There's lots of disruption. There's lots of just brokenness in this kind of world that's been created by this, this author. And in particular, there's these three kids, and the oldest of the siblings is around 12 years old. So he's kind of on that cusp of adolescence. And so with that comes all sorts of insecurities that you know, we all wish we would have outgrown and yet still continue to be with us to this day. Maybe that's just me, but um, we have those things. And so he's dealing with these issues of identity and wondering how he's going to, like even the things that are gonna be called, on, that he's called on to do, is it gonna be too much? I don't, he doesn't have it within him. And one of the things you learn in the story is that his dad had passed away. And so even that, that son looking for the blessing from a father and just that investment, I mean, like there's aspects of that that are, that are missing. And so he's just, you know, there's understandable just sort of like lostness and confusion and those sorts of things. But towards the end of the, the first book, there's this wonderful scene where he is actually, he stumbles upon, he has this letter this letter that his dad wrote to him when he was some, like, two years old. And at the time, you know, I don't think the dad would have, you know, obviously had any idea where things were going to go, but he wanted to write these particular words. And what you're learning about this family is they've got, there's more than meets the eye, and there's some things about them, about even just royalty that they come from and all this. And let me, let me read to you a portion of this letter. This gets at, like, what we need to remember So the dad is writing this, and now many years later, the son stumbles upon this letter. He's like, you've royal blood in your veins, no matter what your name or place in this world. And it occurs to me how silly it is that dad writes to be writing this to a two-year-old boy. But maybe one day when you're alone, unsure, doubting yourself, you'll need these words. Remember this, your father is a king. You are his son. This is your land, and nothing can change that. Nothing. And so on the cusp of just adolescence and all the insecurity and all the the weakness and frailty and all the confusion that that can bring, to have those sort of words spoken over you. And this call that we see here not just in these chapters of Genesis, but throughout the Bible is a story of a king that speaks a word to his people. It says, you're my son, you're my daughter. Don't forget that I am the king. Abram, don't forget that I'm the king and that you're my son with all the privileges that come with that. For us sitting here in 2022 in Altamont Springs, Florida, in this particular place, God is saying to you, if you're in Christ, remember this, he is king and you're his son or his daughter and he has got a place that he's prepared for you. Like this, there's gonna be this renewal of all things. This land will be your land. Nothing can change those realities. Not circumstances, not famine, not a loss of a job. None of that changes anything about how God views you because it doesn't change who God is. And he's the one who's called you a son or a daughter. And so where this goes then, again, if we look at this, it's like, all right, let's follow Abraham's example. Well, yeah, maybe for a couple of verses, but not in these verses. This story, like the whole Bible, is ultimately a story about God and his faithfulness. And so let's look at these closing verses. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his household with severe plagues because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh sent for Abram and said, and here's the crazy thing. God raises up 
this pagan ruler, Pharaoh, to actually speak some truth and some sense into Abram. What have you done to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her as my wife? Now here is your wife. Take her and go. Do you notice? No response from Abram. He doesn't deny it. The truth has come out. And he's just silent. And it says, Then Pharaoh gave his men orders about him, and they sent him away with his wife and all he had. And so Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, he, his wife, and all he had, and Lot with him. And Abram was very rich in livestock, silver, and gold. If you remember, in the first nine verses, we're told that as he travels from Ur to Haran, travels some 800 miles, he's in Canaan, eventually he goes down to the Negev. So he's traveling down geographically to Egypt, and now he's reversing course. And what we're getting here is a picture of repentance. Repentance means to move in a new direction. He is now going back toward the promised land. If we were to keep reading, we would see that when he arrives there, he builds another altar and he begins to call on the name of the Lord. That doesn't mean that Abram is going to be perfect from here on out. Because if you're like, oh, this dude at least learned his lesson, right? Note to self, don't give wife away to, you know, like ruler in the land to another man. Guess what? A few chapters later, he does it again, all right? Um, This is, just you see the brokenness of it. But yet we see God... As the book of Romans tells us, that God in his kindness leads us to repentance, moves us in a new direction. It's about God and his faithfulness to Abram. And when Abram deserved nothing but judgment, all right, somehow what started out as famine leads to this flourishing, at least materially. Like he's sent back with all of these gifts. He's sent back to, to this land. And the whole thing starts with, but the Lord. It's a story about God and his Faithfulness, And so when it says Abram was very rich in livestock, silver, and gold, guess what, though? He didn't earn that. Certainly the takeaway is not go sin grievously against your spouse and you'll become rich. That's obviously not the principle here. But the idea here is God in the midst of absolute darkness and brokenness and sin still can bring about redemption, that nobody is too far gone. There's no part in this where God is like, oh, you know what, okay. He, he left the promised land. He left the land. He gave away his wife. I don't know. Not sure what to do with that. God does work in any and all circumstances because God likes to demonstrate his power in our weakness so he would get the glory for that. And so I'm reminded of this as we close. Paul would write to young Timothy, this kind of, this protege, this one that he's raising up. In 2 Timothy 2, he's like, I want you to rest in this. Abram was called to be faithful. And in some ways, we're going to see ways that he does that throughout this series. Here, he was completely unfaithful. Unfaithful to God, unfaithful to his wife. But God says this. Even if we are faithless, which we will be, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Very nature and character of God, something that will not, cannot change, is his faithfulness, his devotion to setting things right his pursuit of us, his promise to never let you go, his promise to be with you, his promise to sanctify you, that he saved you, he is saving you, and he one day ultimately will save all of us in the sense that like, we'll be completely made whole. 
And so we need to remember that and we need to celebrate that, that the faithfulness of God. When we were faithless, Jesus was faithful and his faithfulness took him all the way to a cross to die for unfaithful people like you and me, to die for the Abrams of the world, to die for the people that have a fear of man more so than a fear of God, to transform us into people that could actually rightly worship God and have a fear of him and find that that is where life comes. And so last verse then, Hebrews chapter 12 reminds us of this. It says this, let us run with endurance. It's gonna be a grind. It's gonna be difficult. There's gonna be strain at times, but let us run with endurance the race that lies before us. And here's the call, keeping our eyes on Jesus. Not on circumstances, not on other people. Keep our eyes on Jesus, who is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Abram isn't, you're not, I'm not. Jesus is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. And for the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross despising the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's where he is right now. He's got everything. He's got you. He is completely faithful. And he invites us to turn and to follow him. We have to keep our eyes on Jesus. So as I pray for us, one thing, I've heard numerous authors say this. I think it's just a helpful principle This is not meant to be like, and this will solve everything. But just imagine this week. What if you lived according to this sort of formula? This sort of formula for faithfulness that for every one look at myself, at my circumstances, you take 10 looks at Jesus. Imagine how that might change things. You gotta look at your life. You gotta look at circumstances. You can't like bury your head in the sand and be like, "Ah, everything's okay, right? Like there are things you gotta look at. And then... Take a look at Christ and take another look at Christ and keep looking at Christ. He's the author and perfecter of your faith. And when you have to look at other circumstances because life demands it of you, do it. Be responsible and then do the most responsible thing. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. And imagine what that might do in regards to having healthy fear of God, swallowing up this fear of man. And so we'll deal with the things that we need to deal with, but we won't be owned by those things. We won't spiral out of control like we see with Abram. We keep looking to Jesus. He's the author and perfecter of our faith. So as I pray for us, ask the Holy Spirit to lead you. Where do you need to repent of? Where do you need to move in a new direction? Where do you need to remember what Christ has done for you? And we're gonna rejoice together. I'll give us some instruction here in a moment how we're gonna do that in this service. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your kindness and your mercy, your continual pursuit of us, when we are faithless and we're running the opposite direction, thank you that you continue to hound us and that you pursue us and that you extend your grace and that you're a God that brings us from places of famine to flourishing, not in our own strength, but through you. So God, help us through the power of your spirit this week to see the circumstances, the things that we're aware of and the things that will catch us by surprise this week. Help us to assess them and look at them and deal with them. But ultimately, spend that time and then look to Jesus and to keep looking to Jesus and be reminded that he is completely faithful and that he is ruling and reigning and that he has died for our sin and our rebellion and our faithlessness. Jesus, we thank you that you're building a people. Thank you that you're building your church and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. Thank you that we get to be part of your redeemed people sent on a mission. 
And God, we ask that you would strengthen us and encourage us. Would you do it for your glory and our joy? We pray in Christ's name, amen.